1: And Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter comes to him and he says to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Heavenly Father, I wonder if Jesus thought the words that we just sang I wonder if he spoke him out loud as he is being tempted by Satan. I wonder if he said, Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, Precious Lord, lead me home. There are three themes during the six weeks of Lent that are always prominent. One obviously is sin. How bad is sin? One is temptation and one is repentance. I want to conclude what I began last week, the temptation of our Lord in the wilderness. Verse 2 After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, our Lord was hungry. The tempter comes to him and says, since you are the Son of God, knowing full well that he was the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He whispers to Jesus, your Father, who just pronounced the blessing upon you when you're baptized, Your father who said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He seems to have forgotten you rather quickly, Jesus. You're in this wilderness 40 days and 40 nights without food. And Satan whispers to him, if your father will not take care of you, then you must take care of yourself. I've said in years past, that when temptation comes, it always begins with a question mark. And the question mark usually pertains to God. If he is not taking care of you financially, if he is not taking care of you in any realm, then you must take care of yourself A question mark concerning God's goodness, his wisdom, whether he's watching over you or whether he's forgotten you. That's how temptation usually starts. Verse 3, the tempter came to Jesus and in verse 5, the tempter is revealed. His name is Satan. I've had people say to me, they don't believe Satan is real. They don't believe the devil actually exists. I will always ask them, do you believe in angels? And they will always answer, yes, we believe in angels. Whether you're a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Taoist or any other religion, they believe in the existence of angels. And then I will point out to that individual, 2 Peter 2, 4. It says, God did not spare the angels that sinned but cast them down to deepest hell, deliver them up to chains of darkness until judgment day. And I'll point out Jude verse 6, where it says, when the angels did not return to their positions of authority, God cast them out of heaven. Jesus, our Lord, said, I saw Satan and his angels fall like lightning from heaven. The devil is an angel, archangel. Book of Revelation says the archangel Michael fought against the archangel Satan. And the archangel Michael and his angels defeated Satan as his angels. And then God himself brought an end to the war by casting Satan out of heaven. Jesus bumped into Satan face to face on three occasions. First occasion here in heaven when he and the Holy Spirit and God himself confronts the archangel Satan. It's the first time that they bump into each other for the purpose of doing battle. The second time is here in Matthew 4, the temptation of Jesus. Satan did not come with a suggestion. This wasn't a hallucination Jesus was having because he hadn't slept well or ate very well. Satan will come to us with suggestions. He'll whisper things into our mind and hearts. That's how the temptation begins. James 1.13, temptation begins with thoughts pertaining to lust, and then that develops into sin. And that develops into death. But when Satan comes to Jesus, this is the Son of God and he knows it. There will not be any suggestions given. He will meet him face to face. And he comes in all his fullness of power. It isn't until Jesus' death and resurrection... That power, the power of Satan is limited. Genesis 3.15, when he dies on that cross, he will crush your head. Satan had great power at this time when he confronts Jesus. There is a third and final time that Jesus will bump into Satan. And that is after his death on the cross. 1 Peter 3.19 When he dies, he goes down into Satan's den. He goes down into hell itself. And the Bible says he preaches to the spirits in prison. And Satan, when he's down there in hell, he says, now I have him. Death is my realm, now I have him. He's down here in hell with me. But God himself raises Jesus from the dead... You can literally see Satan grasping at Jesus' robe, trying to keep him down there. And he comes forth from hell itself. And that was the final victory over sin and death and the power of the devil. Satan, the monster of hell, coming against the Son of God. And so arrogant is Satan... That he, as he confronts God in heaven, so he figures that this Jesus, after 40 days of fasting, would be easy prey to him. Why did God allow this testing to occur? I said last week, when you are tempted, you never blame God. You sit and say, why did God allow this? Or why did God put me through this? James 1.13, let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. God cannot be tempted by evil, neither tempts any man. A man is tempted by his own desires. A man is tempted by this angel called Satan. Why does God allow his son to go through this testing? Satan tempts, but God allows the testing. For Jesus and for you and me. Satan tempts, but God allows the testing. Why did this happen to Jesus? Why did God allow this to happen? The answer, two, three suggestions. But I'll only cover one today. Why did he allow Jesus to be tested? Hebrews 4:15 We do not have a high priest in heaven who cannot sympathize with the feeling of our weakness. We have a high priest who has been tempted in all ways even as we, yet without sin. We have a high priest in heaven who understands when we go through our time of testing. Hebrews 2, 17, more specific. Jesus had to be made like his brothers in all ways, in order that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And then it says, having suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help us when we are tempted. Having suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help us. If you have an addiction to alcohol, I would have no right on God's green earth to ever judge you. I might try and help you, certainly would. Might pray for you, might talk with you, but I would have no authority whatsoever to judge you. That would be mean and cruel for me to do that. Why? Because that's not my besetting sin. It is yours. It is not mine. I have my own. I cannot say to an alcoholic, I know what you're going through, because that's not my sin. You go to Alcoholics Anonymous and the people around there, they know exactly what you are going through. And when they say, I know what you're going through, there's a bond that happens between you and them. If some parent loses a son or daughter, if their son or daughter dies, it would be a most cruel thing for you to go to them and say, I know what you're going through. They would have full right to ask you the question, did you lose a son or a daughter? Did your son or daughter die? And if they say to you, no, I didn't have a son or daughter that died, you would look at them and perhaps in anger say, then you have no clue as to what I'm going through. But if they say to you, yes, I lost a son five years ago, or I lost a daughter five years ago, there would be an instant bond between you. My son had cancer. I never have had cancer. I cannot say to John, I know what you're going through, because that disease has not rested in my body Why did God allow His Son to go through this testing? So that you and I, when we come to that time in our life, perhaps more than once, and we're going through the great anguish of going through this time of testing, Jesus knows. Jesus knows. Our Father in heaven knows. He's 18 years of age. He comes home inebriated. He cannot walk down the hallway without staggering. And his father sees him, and his father starts weeping. And he says to his son, alcoholism has been in our family for decades. And now it has come to you. And it breaks my heart that you have inherited this disease that has coursed through the family. Jesus weeps when we enter our times of testing. And he weeps because he knows the suffering that his children are going through. The Apostle Paul, second Corinthians twelve, he prayed many times that God would remove an affliction from him. He doesn't say what the affliction was, he doesn't say whether it's cancer or rheumatoid arthritis or going blind or whatever. He doesn't say what the affliction is. He just talks about the time of testing. He said, Lord, I've asked you many, many times to get rid of this thing in my life that causes this suffering. And what did Jesus say to him? Jesus said to him, Apostle, stop talking about this. I'm going to allow this to be in your life. Because when it's there, my presence in your life is stronger than it would be if it wasn't there. And the Apostle Paul then says, I'll rejoice when this period of testing comes. Because God comes in all the fullness of his power. And I can feel it. When I am weak, then am I strong. That's why God allowed his son to go through this testing. So that we come to that time in our lives. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. Third point. The Bible talks about Satan being a roaring lion. 1 Peter 5, 7 I rather see him as a cowardly jackal. What do I mean? Satan does not come to us in our strength. He comes to us in our weakness. Satan usually comes at our weakest point and our weakest time. I'll give you examples. Here is a man who's climbed up the ladder. He's had one promotion after another. He's had great success. Here's an 18-year-old. He's one of the best football players in the state. He's had many colleges coming after him. And he has accepted a full scholarship from one of them. Satan comes in our weakness. We have succeeded. We're at the top of the ladder. We have people talking about us all the time... Satan comes in that moment of great pride, and he says to us, you did this on your own. God wasn't really needed by you. It was your intelligence, it was your powers, your charisma. That's how he comes. In our time of weakness, when we've climbed up the ladder and everyone is singing our praises, that's when he comes. You don't really know God. You don't really need him. Jeremiah nine twenty three. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the rich man in his wealth or the strong man in his strength. Let him who boasts boast in this that they know me, the Lord God Almighty. Comes to us on our weakness. Remember a man 15 years ago millionaire in this congregation his wife came all the time he did not she asked me to speak to him I did and as he spoke about his wealth and his power it was all about himself he literally said to me I didn't need God I did this on my own Satan comes to us in our weak moments Sin of pride. He also comes to us in our weak moments. Cowardly jackal. The baby is stillborn. Uh, Here he comes. She's 38 years of age. She has brain cancer, three young children. Here Satan comes. Twenty-one-year-old was in a car accident. He's going to be paralyzed for the rest of his days. Here Satan comes. They had just joined a small group. They had just joined a small group. They want to grab hold of Christ and his power. They want to change in their life. They just joined a small group. And it's the first time that the small groups ever met... And someone starts talking politics. (laughs) And there's an argument that rages. And he says to his wife, We're done. I don't need this. I see this out in the world. I don't need this. Satan gives a high five to his other angels and he says, That's pretty easy. That was pretty easy. That one's done. Satan is a cowardly jackal. He comes to us in our weakest moments and at our weakest time. Here's a man. His issue is not alcoholism. It's not drugs. It's not pornography. It's not embezzling money. His weakness is his pride and arrogance. He hears a story about someone, and it's not a nice story. And his sin leads him, when he hears the story, his sin, his weakness. Someone else might hear the story and say, I feel so badly for that individual. Someone else might hear the story about how this person got in trouble, and they might actually call him and say, can I come and talk with you? Is there anything I can do for you or your family? But not this individual with a sin of pride and arrogance. He hears a story and he can hardly wait to get on his computer or his phone. And he's going to let everyone know about what this person has done. He can hardly wait to gossip about this individual. And Satan gives high fives to the angels around him. And he says, we've done it again. Roaring lion, I think not. I think him a cowardly jackal. My question to you is this. Do we stand a chance? Jesus in his weakened state face to face... With the archangel Satan. Does he stand a chance? Temptation number one comes. Jesus says, Man shall not live by bread alone. Temptation number two comes. Thou shalt worship no one else save God Himself. Temptation number three comes. There was one piece of armor that Jesus had. It was the same piece of armor that David had when he went against Goliath. It's the same piece of armor that you and I have. The armor is this playbook, the armor is God's Word. When he says to Paul Strand, Don't worry about tomorrow, Paul Strand has to get that into his mind and heart. He has to pray it in. He has to write down notes. He has to have God to make that come alive in my life. Let me live in the moment, God, and you're in the moment. Don't, me, don't let me live in the past. Don't let me start thinking about things in the future. Let me live this moment, God. Ephesians 6, 11 and 12, it says, put on all the armor of God. This is what it's pointing at. Put on all the armor of God because you don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You wrestle against principalities and powers and rulers of this world's darkness. You wrestle against Satan. This is your armor. 7,000 times in this book, God has said, Here's the armor that I want you to put on. Do not be afraid. I'm with you. This is the armor. Your sins are forgiven. Through one drop of Jesus' blood. This is the armor. Don't worry about tomorrow. I'll be with you today. This is the armor. This is the day God has made. This is the day God has made. I'll rejoice and be glad in the fact that God is with me. Even if it's a time of testing, God is with me. That's all it takes, people. James 4, 7. You want a powerful verse? James 4, 7. It says, "Submit yourself to God." Okay, three points. Number one, submit yourself to God. Number two, resist Satan, and he will run from you. Point number three, come near to God; he'll come near to you. You mentioned one verse from God's word, and Satan leaves. He cannot stand to be in God's presence. You ask God, deliver me in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He runs as soon as you mention God's name. God is his great enemy. You mention God's name. He runs. How do you resist temptation? This armor, God's word. How else do you do it? You surround yourself with Christians. You surround yourself with Christians. That's why I'm so glad that 450 of you are in small groups. I hope the time comes when 80 or 90 percent of our people are in small group. You surround yourself with Christians. Why do you do that? Something comes into your life. Some really bad thing comes into your life. You've been in this small group for quite some time. People in your small group have gone through the same thing you've gone through. They've gone through cancer. They've gone through the illness of a son or daughter, an addiction of a son or daughter, Alzheimer's with the parents. They've gone through these things. And when it comes to you, here comes Satan. Guess what he has to go through? He has to go through all your friends. He has to go through all your friends. They become part of your defense mechanism. He bumps into Tony, who's in your small group. Tony's been through this. He bumps into Marianne. She's in your small group. Marianne's gone through this. And they are speaking to you words of encouragement and support. And Satan is saying, hey, I'm trying to get to the person in the middle and you're all blocking me. Do you understand? The groups that God puts us in. The handbell choirs and the adult choirs and the altar guilds, and the LWMLs, and the small groups, and this group that worships together. God gives us two things to defend against Satan, his word and other Christians. You say to me, Paul, Jesus was alone in the wilderness when he was tempted, and I'll give you that. But when he is tempted on the Mount of Transfiguration, and when he's tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Peter, James, and John, would you come with me? I need you. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, who does Jesus, who does God send to Jesus' small group? (laughs) He, He drags up Moses and Elijah. He drags up Moses and Elijah as well as Peter, James and John. And they surround our Lord in His powerful name. Amen. Would you rise as we pray? Can't do it alone, Lord. Wouldn't stand a chance. Need Your Word. Need Your promises. And I need to have read your words so often that those promises bump into me all the time. When I was a kid, my parents reminded me every day, did you brush your teeth? And every day I need to be reminded through the promises of God that you stand with me and I need not fear. And Heavenly Father, we also need others you bring others into our life to be a defensive wall when Satan comes. Here's a baby Christian. Here's a Christian who's been a Christian for a long time. And the Christian who's been a Christian for a long time has gone through many storms. Their faith is as strong as an oak tree. cannot be moved. And they become the defense mechanism. For the baby Christian. They keep Satan away and they encourage the baby Christian. Lord, we need not fear Satan. For the one in us who has gone through temptation. The one in us who died on that cross and rose again. He stands by our side. And Satan dare not come near. Resist Satan, and he will flee from you. In our Lord's powerful name, amen.